This is Power Pivot with Leela Sinha. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Power Pivot, the podcast where we talk about ethics, leadership, power, and community. We're having these conversations out loud in public because power can corrupt, but it doesn't have to be that way. Today's show may contain references to erotic and sexual subjects, so make your decision about where and how to listen appropriately. Today, our guest is Kate Sloan. Kate is a writer, podcaster, and storyteller who specializes in sex, kink, and relationships. Her award-winning sex blog at girlyjuice.net has been going strong for eight years, and her writing has also appeared in publications like Cosmopolitan, Teen Vogue, and Glamour. The two podcasts she co-hosts, The Dildorks with Bex Caputo and and Question Box with Brent Black, both seek to break down stigmas and have the conversations not enough people are having. Her introductory kink book, 101 Kinky Things That Even You Can Do, is forthcoming in 2021. And her social media links, which we will repeat at the end, are at girly underscore juice for both Twitter and Instagram. Website girlyjuice.net. That's G-I-R-L-Y juice.net. And katewritesaboutsex.com. And podcasts are The Dildorks and Question Box. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a delight to have you. I'm so excited for this interview. So um, let's start out. Why don't you give us a couple of lines about about the kinds of things that you do beyond what you beyond what you put in your bio? What what else do you want our listeners to know about what you do? Hmm, it's a very interesting question uh, because I feel like my work has increasingly become also my hobbies, um, and that's actually something I want to work on in my life. But um, I love to go to comedy shows. I love to play music on the ukulele and the piano, um, and I'm a writer, uh, even when I'm not writing for money. I'm just, like, always journaling and writing weird little fiction vignettes and uh, just, like, constantly writing, which uh, maybe isn't strictly the most healthy thing, but it's the thing that I love to do the most. (laughs) It's that Hamilton thing, right? Why do you write like you're running out of time? Yes, exactly. I definitely, I mean, I have like uh, some mental illness struggles and one of them is occasional hypomania. And sometimes I'll just write for like way too many hours and my body's like, you need to get up and have a glass of water and stretch. And I'm like, no, I'm in the zone. This is what I'm doing now. Right. This is the zone. This is where I stay, which is actually really typical. Also, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the the work that I've done, but um, that's very typical of intensives. People who just yes, I, I am. go for it and then take long breaks. <laughs> so um, yeah, I I so, read yeah, really hard with with what you've written about intensives. Um, I think like I as soon as I read about that, I was like, this is totally me. I've never understood people who are able to be sort of like chill and do things halfway because I like in work in relationships, I've just never really done that. Yeah, halfway is is. I find that it's useful, but it's really not intuitive for me. I have to really deliberately be like, I'm only going to do a half-ass job on this. Really, I'm only going to do a half-ass. I'm only going to, I'm only, no, no, half-ass. Like, I have to keep after myself to knock it off before I hit, you know, that sort of peak. Because I, I find myself seeking that kind of flow state, that peak experience that I can give myself from getting in the zone and forgetting to eat. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's like a very satisfying psychological state, but I'm aware that for me at least it can also be dangerous and slightly unhealthy. But at the same time, it's like that's where I produce my best work, like no contest. And and my work has the power to help people sometimes. So it's like I have to, you know, balance my, my own body's needs versus like what the world needs from me. Right. That sort of, oh, there's a physical reality that I really have to concede exists, even though I don't really want to. Mm-hmm. So your work revolves around sexuality and specifically you've done a bunch of work around kink. So when I get to have these conversations with somebody who has a background in things like sexuality and kink, of course, the question of sexuality and power and leadership all tie together. So what do you think is the most interesting piece of the interaction of those three elements? 
Well, I think there's a lot of interesting things going on in the interaction between kind of the macro and the micro within the kink community in the sense that like on an individual person to person level, we are playing with power. We are doing power exchange. We are consensually giving up our power or uh, sort of borrowing someone else's power with their permission. But at the same time in the community, there's a lot of the same power imbalances and power struggles and power issues that you see kind of in the world at large. And that's been an ongoing problem. Like I'm thinking about things like sizeism in the rope bondage community or like racism in the community more generally, or uh, just the general perception that men should be dominant and women should be submissive. And definitely like there are more progressive sects of the community, but these patterns do reproduce themselves. And it's just interesting how a community that is basically founded on figuring out how to have a, a new and different and healthier and more consensual relationship to power can sometimes replicate these dynamics that are none of those things. Do you think there's a way in which we can deliberately use that intentionality to play with modifying those structures, like even within the community? I think so. And I'm seeing some people doing some work around this. Like I went to a conference a while ago where there was a panel called Anarchist Dominance and Submission. And it was it was a bunch of oh, people wow. who identify. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a very, very interesting time. And I definitely like cried a lot and made a lot of notes and, and thought a lot. But it was a bunch of people who are like leftists and like align themselves with some degree of anarchy and also are kinky. And they were talking about how sometimes even if you're like structurally and systematically disempowered out in the world, it can be really calming and empowering in its own way to give up power to someone else consensually, which is definitely a thing that I've experienced. But they also talked about the idea of what if you use kink as a space to practice uh, having power that you don't have in the world? And so like some examples of that that they give would be like if you do a role play where one person is like gay bashing another person and then the person being targeted kind of like turns it around on the attacker and like gets them back. Um, and like it's all consensual. It's all like pre-negotiated. But it is this way of like right. acting out. Um, a, uh, a dynamic or a, or a thing that that might be empowering if it happened in the real world, but also might be really dangerous and illegal if it happened in the real world. So it's, it's just this kind of like cathartic process. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. I know I've noticed as a person with a stack of marginalizations in my own identity, I've noticed that, um, when I can construct a scenario either in or out of um, a sexual a sexual context, but when I can construct a scenario where um, where I can actually have that experience of holding power, it really changes the way I move in the world even after I exit that scenario because my brain has had like this completely new experience. Um, and of course, our brains don't make a huge distinction between um, between fantasy and reality. So if you can imagine something vividly enough and certainly acting it out um, supports that, if you can imagine something vividly enough, then you can actually um, use that transformatively in terms of, of your ongoing behavior. Yes, I, I think like there is um, a sentiment that I've heard from some kinksters that like kink is a a place where you can practice feelings that you want to feel in the world more generally, like feelings of empowerment. Um, and that certainly makes me question my own kind of like erotic inclinations because I've always leaned pretty submissive. That's definitely the thing that excites me the most. And when I try to play a more dominant role, like I can get into it, but I often feel sort of awkward. And I describe it often as like, it's fun, but it's not hot. Like it doesn't, necessarily turn me on and I've I've given a lot of thought to the idea of like is that a preference that has been beaten into me by the patriarchy which is which is like a really classic kind of like second wave feminist argument that I think is not certainly universal like 
submissive women can totally be feminist, submissive women can totally be strong and empowered. But uh, it is something that I do like to at least like think critically about now and again and think like, am I actually empowering myself through my submission? And I I work pretty hard to ensure that I am. Yeah, I I think that both are possible. I'm actually, the idea of acting out having power feels like it's a pretty obvious response, right? But acting out the choice to relinquish power or to exchange, you know, to give power to someone else temporarily, I think is a much more intricate psychological space. I was just reading an article uh, one of my sweeties passed on to me from Vice about chronic pain and sex that talks about it in much the same way. This idea that, that I'm in pain all the time. I don't have a choice about it. So putting myself in a position where I choose to be in pain, I choose the pain for a specific reason, develops a stronger relationship between me and my body. And the pain, the chronic pain actually helps create that stronger relationship. It's a really interesting article. Yeah, I actually have chronic pain myself. I I don't know if it's the same article, but I was recently interviewed for an article about that. And I have definitely found that to be true because it's it's like in the same way that like I can choose consensual pain in a in a safe space with a trusted partner and that feels better to me than the non-consensual chronic pain that was just like thrust upon me. In similar ways, choosing submission and choosing, like, in a way, like, subjugation, but in this consensual environment can feel really empowering and very, very different from times that I have felt made to be submissive or belittled non-consensually in my everyday life. So can you tell us a little more about how that's empowering for you? Yes. Um, I think, like, one of the really common tropes around submission is the idea that, like, Someone who's really type A in their real, quote unquote, real life, um, who, who really has to like get a lot of things done, who has a lot on their shoulders, very like have their shit together type of person, that that's the type of person who might enjoy submitting because uh, in that kink space, they can kind of like give over control to someone else for a while and just like not worry about making decisions and just kind of let that part of their brain relax. And that definitely is a part of it for me. Um And I also, in particular, really favor, like, a nurturing style of dominance and submission. Like, I'm not big on, like, the sort of traditional, like, punitive, mean style. I like, um, like, you know, I call my partner daddy. It's it's this sort of, like, not family, but vaguely familial and certainly nurturing dynamic. And I find that very uh, calming because that's, that's, like, not totally the relationship I had with my parents. Like my parents are great, but um, I think like there's something about this style of like nurturing, um, taking care of me that feels um, very different and very distinct from that. And in a way that it feels like I need, and this is why like I, it, it gets very complicated because like people often say to women like me who like to call their partners daddy, that we have like daddy issues and that we're like doing it in order to, um, you know, work through issues that we have with our parents. And I actually feel like I, I guess something so different from this dynamic. I mean, obviously like the sexy stuff, but, um, it's, it's just like being taken care of in a different way than a parent would be able to take care of me, or even like a vanilla partner would be able to take care of me. Like, it just makes me feel held and safe in a way that is really unlike anything else I've ever experienced. And so that safety is a sense of, of being supported in your, in your submission. Yes, I think like, so my partner and I have our kinky dynamic both in and out of the bedroom. So there is that like direct moment to moment safety that comes like during a sexual encounter where I'm just very aware that this is not a person who's going to push my boundaries or give me more than I can handle. And that's a nice thing to be able to trust in, but also in my life more generally, like my partner um, is my dominant in terms of like motivating me to be productive and keeping an eye on my progress on, on my work goals, my personal goals and making decisions for me when I just can't make decisions anymore. And that also is a thing that makes me feel very 
calm and safe and taken care of and stronger to, to move through the world. Yeah, I mean, sometimes if you have a structure where somebody is holding a container for you that feels safe and nurturing, then you can use that as almost like ballast, right? Like it helps you keep your balance when you stick your head out in other places. Mm-hmm. So so how does this work? How do some of these concepts enter into ooh, contexts of leadership for you? You know, you have a very public, very robust public image and public presence. So how does this, how do these ideas help you lead in the public sphere? Hmm. That's really interesting. I wonder if um, people seeing me online and talking about being submissive, in some sense, maybe not even consciously, gives them the idea that someone who can appear to be so strong and productive um, can also have moments of like weakness and vulnerability. And that's not to say that submission is strictly about weakness, but it is about kind of like often opening yourself up to that side of yourself that is sort of like your vulnerable underbelly and accessing that side and actively communing with that side of yourself. And so I wonder if it gives some people permission mentally to go a little more in that direction because they can see that I'm achieving things despite sometimes role-playing as a little girl who does what daddy tells her in the bedroom. And I really like that juxtaposition. And I really like that, uh, especially with like third and fourth wave feminism, that we're like starting to come around to the idea that those things are not necessarily in opposition. Yeah, I think there's so much available when we, for me, this this goes to, to a lot of the places where binaries are breaking down. And we see that in gender, of course, we see that in orientations of various kinds. And when we think about it in terms of power, this idea that power is A, associated with men or with masculinity, and B, that it has to be, which, you know, you earlier you said, you said this idea in the kink world that men should be dominant and women should be submissive in my brain. Like my instant reaction was, is that still a thing? Really? Um, <laughs> because I, I tend to, I tend to move in very alternative, al- very alternative circles. And so that has really shifted in, in the context that I occupy, but mm-hmm. more the, this idea that power is, associated with men or masculinity and that it has to be absolute. I think the the qualities of, even when we continue to maintain some idea of a binary, right, dominance and submission are sort of binary, but, and they work well that way. Like that, that tension, that tango, that, that, that back and forth can be one of the beautiful things about it. Mm-hmm. But when we occupy these spaces with a sense that there's some fluidity or that there can be exchange or interchange or that dominance can be soft and submission can be hard or, you know, we start to mix those things up. I think there's this richness that's emerging culturally. Yeah. I really like being able to model that for folks. And another note on leadership is that my partner is a non-binary kinky polyamorous person who runs a company and is like quite visible in their industry which is tech. And they're like totally out as being my partner, which means that anyone could at any time theoretically go and read my blog and read about all of our various exploits. And we've heard from multiple people that people in the tech industry, especially that reading about partners, openness about all of these things, gender, sexuality, et cetera, uh, has, has been really like liberating for some of these people and has given them permission to do what they want to do and to be more open about it. Sounds like I should get your partner on this show too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Because I've got, you know, the the great thing about this topic is that it's so broad, right? So I've got people all the way from independently operating fierce, out proud sex workers to, um, to kind of middle of the road, like somebody I interviewed with the the podcast hasn't launched as we're doing this interview yet, but it will soon. And somebody I interviewed recently was, um, 
is a, a kind of a middle of the road Episcopalian layperson who's heavily, who's been to seminary and is heavily involved in leadership in the Episcopalian church. So I've got these like, and I've got my own ministerial colleagues in the Unitarian Universalist Association. Like I've got, and then I've got CEOs. I've got this huge range of people because power is so important to talk about. So, mm-hmm. so can you tell us about a moment when you, when you really claimed your power and when that really, really like rippled out into your life in some kind of interesting way. Hmm. Do you mind if I take a moment to think about that? Not at all. Well, one of the topics that I'm, most known for writing about and that I most enjoy writing about is the intersections between kink and mental health. And I've definitely found at some times in my life, particularly when my depression or anxiety were very bad, that uh, like receiving a lot of pain can be this kind of cathartic ordeal that like floods my body with endorphins and adrenaline, but also on a psychological level, proves to me that I am strong, that I can I can handle a lot. And um, a lot of the same strategies that I use to get through pain are the same strategies that I use to get through situations that make me anxious, like thinking I only have to do this for like one more minute and then just doing that minute by minute until <laughs> I get through it or, or like reminding myself of times in the past when I've done something really difficult. And so um, I think like when I when I went through a period when I was about 23, 24, when I was like really leaning into this idea that like being spanked really hard could help with my moods. I just had this like renewed sense of like, oh, I know how to cope with things. Like I can figure out creative and interesting ways of coping with things and I can get through a lot of pain, which means I can get through a lot of other things. And it really genuinely helped me. And I feel like when I tell this to people, they often don't really believe me or they kind of think I'm joking, but it really has been like a a very amazing thing for me. Can you walk us through that mental process a little bit? Yeah. So I think like when I'm when I'm in the midst of a heavy sadomasochistic scene, I go into what we in the kink community call subspace, which is sort of akin to flow state in a way or akin to like a trance or different people describe it different ways, but For me, like my thoughts get kind of quiet and slow and I can really only focus on like one or two thoughts at a time, which is very unlike my regular life when I'm just like full of anxieties and random thoughts. But so I'll be I'll be taking a lot of pain and after a while I'll get to a point where it feels like I can't take any more. And that's kind of my body's response is it's it's sending me the message like you should stop soon. And ordinarily I would not necessarily ignore my body when it gives me that message because I think it's normally a good idea to listen to that (laughs) but in kink I can allow myself to kind of push through that because I know from past experience that it is safe to do so as long as I'm with someone who will take care of me like especially with something like spanking the risks are I think pretty low like I've occasionally drawn a small amount of blood but that's about as as bad as it's ever been for me and so I know when I get to that point, that feeling of like, I can't do this anymore, that I can push through it and I'll do it with a a broad range of cognitive and physical strategies. So saying to myself, I can just take one more hit and then one more and then one more, or I'll focus on my breathing or I'll count in my head or I'll project myself mentally somewhere else, like go to my happy place or whatever just like do all these different strategies. And they're really similar to what I do when I'm in a situation where my anxiety is very high, like maybe a stage fright type of situation, or uh, I'm about to send a really big invoice to a client and I'm nervous about what they'll say. Like, it's the same kind of thing where like my mind goes like, I can't do this. I can't, I cannot take any more of this. And then I just, I just do it. I just push through it. Mm -hmm. So for you, that moment of I can't do it. Okay, I'm going to do it anyway. Is a moment of claiming your power. It's a moment of being like, yeah, I'm actually stronger than than my brain thinks I am. Let's go. Yes. Um there's this writer I love, Alexandra Franzen, and she says something like, sometimes you have to endure temporary discomfort in order to achieve something permanently amazing. And I think about that a lot because I think so often like 
the things I've done that I'm so proud of myself for really just involved like a few minutes or even maybe a few seconds of like extreme bravery. Uh, and the rest around it was just like me um, like psyching myself out about that bravery. And instead of just like doing the brave thing that I needed to do. And I really think like masochism has given me a lot of the tools that I needed to be able to face a lot of those hard things. And from what you were saying earlier, it sounds like it also has given you um, not just the tools, but the but the experience, the lived experience of doing that, and so um, has built up your confidence that okay, if I if I think I can do this and I strategize my way through it, I probably can because I've done it before. Yeah, I I call that like a fear reference. Like it's kind of like when a when a fear comes up, and I just. I just refer to something that I've been through before and I'll be like, well, this was kind of like this thing, which went fine or went better than fine. So it'll probably be okay. And like, sometimes I push myself through those moments and sometimes it's my dominant pushing me through those moments, like going like, Hey, do you remember that time that you sent another client a really big invoice and they paid it immediately and said that they loved your work? I'm like, Oh yeah, that, that feels good to think about. So uh, that stuff like that helps me and it doesn't have to come from within myself necessarily. Mm -hmm. Which is a great example of how having structures of external structures where you um, might relinquish power supports internal structures of having power. Yes. Cause I think, um, a lot of times I don't trust myself. Like I don't trust my own judgment. Um, and that is definitely part of why I have a dominant often make decisions for me. I think the other more significant part is that I just enjoy that because I'm kinky. But um, it's interesting how you would think maybe that having a dominant make so many decisions for me over time would kind of like erode my ability to make my own decisions or to trust my own decisions. But I actually find that the opposite is true because I, after a certain point, started making decisions that I thought my dominant would be pleased with, like sending that invoice, like raising my rates, whatever it is, um, like preemptively before being told to. And so it, it actually like being dominated has shored up my own self-confidence and has kind of guided me in a direction where I, I can make better choices for myself. I'm over here nodding. I'm I'm thinking so so as you're talking I'm thinking about the relationship between your relationship with your dominant and for example someone's relationship with a really good manager or someone's relationship with a really good coach. In my work, I typically work with leaders and founding teams and they come to me usually because they're feeling a little disoriented or because their intensiveness is undermining their leadership or something like that and and I'm like, no, no, your intensiveness is actually your greatest asset. Let's talk about how that can be true. But it's not all that different a relationship. Mm -hmm. If we strip away kind of the social structures, you know, I have one client that I've worked with amazingly um, for 10 years. And over that time, we've adjusted the schedule. She doesn't see me as often. And, and we do a more interest, a more in-depth mix of work than we used to do. Um, but I, I started working with her as an executive coach. We were, um, she was in a position of leadership and she was having some trouble because she was good at what she did, but she was, but she was also really struggling with the interpersonal part of her work. And now she says, you know, I just ask myself, what would Leela say? What would Leela do? <laughs> if, if I bring this to Leela, what will she say? And then she just acts on, she acts on what she figures I would have told her to do anyway. So will you reflect for us a little bit on ways that you think this this translates out of kink and into more traditional power? I mean, this is, I'm going out on a limb a little saying this, but it's really true that, you know, any coaches and managers and all that, right, that's a, that's really a consensual power exchange relationship when you go become somebody's employee. That's a, that's a consensual power <laughs> exchange relationship. So, so can you talk about how these things translate from, recreational consensual power exchange to to more you know survival oriented power exchange yeah i think one of the big things that kink has taught me is about the value of interdependence because uh, i think like especially being raised as a woman in like the early 21st century like i i was very much it was drilled into me that the need to be independent and i mean 
I hear that romantically, like, don't be so clingy, don't be so needy. And I also hear that kind of like professionally, like, I should be like a a girl boss, right? Like, I should be a go-getter and I should be independent. I shouldn't need anybody else to help me out. And I just, I mean, for a while I wanted that, but I I just don't really resonate with that. And um, for, for a long time, I was like, well, it's not really healthy that I want other people to um, like make decisions for me and support me in that way because it's kind of imbalanced. But what I learned through like meeting and dating dominance is that there are people who really love to do that, who feel very like fulfilled and filled up by by helping in that way and that I can help them in my own ways too. And so I think through this process, I've kind of learned more generally that there's nothing wrong with relying on people. Like humans are social creatures. We have to seek uh, help or advice or support from each other. And we are stronger in, in our endeavors and in ourselves when we do that. And um, yeah, kink has definitely helped me like release a lot of shame about needing or wanting other people's help and support. And have you ever run across a situation where you were in a work relationship with someone that wasn't, you know, where where you were in a, a more traditional work relationship with someone and you felt yourself drawing on some of the same skills or elements of of interpersonal dynamics that you've honed and rehearsed with your dominant? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. I think, I, I think, uh, like I used to get much more angry and annoyed when people would try to give me directions and like micromanage me. Uh, and, and like now I'm like mostly self-employed and freelance. So like, I don't have to deal with that usually, but, um, I used to kind of just like, it would get my hackles up a little bit, especially if it was like a project where I had ostensibly been given creative freedom and then they would like get in there and start bossing me around and telling me what I was doing wrong in a way that like I felt was going beyond the typical responsibilities of like an editor or a supervisor. And I think knowing dominant oriented people has kind of given me the knowledge that for some people, this is sort of how they show affection or how they seek fulfillment and it doesn't necessarily have to do with like wanting to belittle me personally like it it very well might there are definitely shitty bosses out there but um I can see now that sometimes this type of guidance is almost like a love language even if it's sort of in a professional environment even if I don't like always experience it as such (laughs) and so I think it's given me kind of the perspective to be a little bit less angry when stuff like that (laughs) Because I could, I could be like, I see what you're trying to do, and I see why you're trying to do it. Uh, let's let's have a discussion and figure out how we can do this in a way that makes us both feel good. Mm. Right, and just being able to articulate that and say, "Listen, I I get that you're doing something," because I I know I'm sometimes guilty of that. I'm like, I just want to help you, <laughs> and if I don't get consent for that first. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't really matter what context it is. If I don't get consent for that first, if I don't get buy-in from the other person, then it doesn't work, right? Or it can work, but it'll be awkward and difficult. When you think about the ways in which you, you've you used your power, um, you know, you mentioned earlier that your work has the ability to help people and to serve the world. Tell us about a time when you were explicitly clear in the moment that you were using your power for good. I mean, I I try to raise up marginalized voices. I definitely could always be doing better at that, and I I am trying to get better at that. But I'll write posts that link to the work of marginalized folks who I think are doing great stuff or retweet and whatnot, which is, like, not that big of a deal. But, I mean, I have built up this pretty significant online following and it's just like, what's that for if not to try to do something good with it? But I also think like the bulk of my work is about talking about vulnerability and just being really honest about my own flaws and weirdnesses and shortcomings. Like I do that all the time in my writing and on my podcast. And I hear from people pretty often that my work like 
resonated with them and made them feel less alone and made them feel like less of a weirdo. And I have this belief that sexual shame holds us back not only on an individual level, but societally, because I think that when you are spending time and brain space and energy fretting about this very basal part of yourself and thinking like, am I normal? Am I a weirdo? Like, are people going to not want to love me or be with me because of this thing? I think if you're spending all those resources on that, you just have less to give to the world and to the people you love. And so if I can like chip away at sexual shame, even a little bit, I think that that is significant or it feels like it is to me. Oh, it's totally significant. My first experience with sexuality education was in church because I'm a Unitarian Universalist. And so when I was 13 or 14, we had um, se- we had a, a year-long sex ed curriculum. And it was, for folks who aren't familiar with Unitarian Universalism, our sex ed curriculum is, I think, one of the most stellar things our denomination does. And it at the time, it was just one year. Now we have lifespan sex ed. Um, but what we were doing in that moment in church was learning about communication. And uh, yes, we did the kind of plumbing stuff, but it was largely about communication and consent and groundedness. And this is 1989. So this is a while ago. And this curriculum had been in the curriculum I went through had been in place since the seventies. We updated it in the nineties and now we're continuously updating it because there's been a recognition denomination wide that, that sexuality education needs persistent updates, you know, like the curriculum that we were working with was out of date with regard to, for example, um, gender identity and trans identity issues. And so, so there, there's this constant updating process that's now in place. But for me, being in that space of dismantling sexual shame and in church, which is for me, incredibly powerful, right? Because our culture so strongly associates sexual shame with church. And so being in a church where they were like, sexuality is sacred and it's a normal part of the human experience. And these are the skills and tools that you need to have a good experience with your own sexuality and the sexuality of others, should you choose to engage it. And so when I see someone like you out there doing this persistent work of, of, dismantling sexual shame, dismantling shame around whoever you are, whatever your identity is in your case, right? You're out there being clear and strong and visible and also publicly submissive. And how does that, how does that interact? And letting people see that, letting people know what that's like in a kind of an everyday, like, and today looked like this kind of way, I think is incredibly powerful. So yes, absolutely. Um, That's critical. Thank you. I I really love what you said about the the education in church. I think that that's so important. And I particularly love that you're emphasizing communication because that to me, like from all these years that I've been doing this work, that is the biggest problem within sexual relationships. And people will do almost anything to avoid directly talking to their partner about a thing that they want if they have shame about it. Like they will email someone on the internet or they will post on a forum or they will Google it. And all those things are like helpful, but at a right <laughs> at a certain point, like I always just feel like you really have to ask your partner. Like men will write to me and be like, "Do women like X Y Z sex thing?" And I'm like, "Well, I mean, I could tell you what I like, but you're not fucking me. Like, it's not relevant. You have to ask your partner." <laughs> So can you tell us about a time when you maybe didn't didn't ask for what you wanted at first and then like shifted gears and were like, no, I actually have to do this? <laughs> yeah, I think um, one of the biggest ones for me was calling partners daddy. And um, there are just so many layers of shame there. I mean, there's the internal shame of like, is this related in any way to my relationship with my father, which I've like done a lot of internal work. And I kind of have come to the conclusion that like, it might be, but whatever, like, this is the psychology I have to work with now. This is the brain I have. So whatever. Um, 
And then there's also kind of like the external shame of like, will someone think this is weird? Will someone not want to do this and then like not want to sleep with me anymore? And so I used to kind of like casually mention it to people because this was like before I had like actually done it or like been in like a kind of daddy dom little girl dynamic. And so I was just kind of like toying with it. And I would just be like, I don't know. I've always thought it might be fun to call a partner daddy, but I don't know. It's, it's kind of weird. And then sometimes they would like not really comment on it. And sometimes they would be like, well, yeah, I'd be into that. And then I would kind of like whisper it once during sex because I was like so embarrassed and like it was just really new and difficult. And I got into a relationship eventually where I did the same thing. I kind of like confessed on the second date during a conversation about kinks. Like this is something I'm interested in. And this person was like, yeah, like I've been interested in that too. We can definitely talk more about that. Um, And I dated him for about three months and he was my first daddy dom. And it just, even though romantically we weren't super compatible and it didn't end up working out, like that dynamic felt immediately so good to me, like just so healing and like definitely like arousing and sexy and all of that. But like more deeply, like psychologically, it felt like I had found this thing that I needed and I just knew that I that I wanted to continue to pursue that going forward. And so, I mean, I preach sexual communication all the time, but it took me years to get to a point where I felt like I could ask for that thing. And it just was not as scary in the end as I had imagined that it would be. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really common thing in the sexuality educator community that, you know, we know in principle all the ways that would be ideal if we did things, but then, you know, that doesn't absolve us. That doesn't remove us from our social and cultural training or context. And so we still have to be like, and this is going to take a really deep breath. (laughs) You know, this is going to take that. I have to be uncomfortable for two minutes to get the thing that I want. Um, or to find out that it's not the thing you want, right? That's the other that's yeah. the other challenge around communication is sometimes you screw up your courage and you ask for a thing. And then it turns out that either there's something in my in, in my life right now where I'm still trying to parse out like what is the thing I'm trying to ask for? Cause because mm-hmm. you like screw up your courage and try to ask for it, and then you're like, wait, that's not quite right. <laughs> I yeah. didn't quite get the thing right. And then you have to go back to the person and be like, that's not what I meant. I said it. I know I said it, but I said the wrong thing, but I don't know what the right thing is yet, <laughs> but I'm still working it out. And that's, that's one of those contexts where, you know, I feel like it's really useful to just say the awkward thing, like say the thing that's really the sticking point and see where you can get. So, so are there any challenges around power or questions that you're still wrestling with? Yeah, I mean, so a big one for me is about being dominant sexually. Um, So my partner is a switch. They're like a pretty dominant leaning switch, but they do like to switch from time to time. And I'm like happy to do that. Uh, And I've had partners in the past who I had more of a dominating uh, relationship to. So it's definitely something that I know I have in me. Um, But as I said, like, it's not always the most arousing thing for me, which, which is a separate issue, but there's also the question of like, I don't feel super confident always doing it. I don't always feel like I'm, you know, the sexy dominatrix, uh, just like smooth and cool. And like, I know that most people don't feel that way when they first start dominating, but it's again, one of those things where like having been in this industry for so long, I just feel like I should be better at it, I guess, because I've read and written about it a lot, but it's like, that's really not the same thing as Mm -hmm. living it. And so I, I am interested in exploring that more, but I almost wonder if it would be better for me to explore it without sex necessarily being on the table because like, it's just sometimes I get in my head about like, this isn't turning me on and it's supposed to, and that's bad. And so I failed at this. And it's like, kink is not always necessarily about sexiness. Like there are tons of asexual people who practice kink because they find it psychologically healing or important for whatever reasons. Um, And so, yeah, I think maybe that would help me in my quest to become more comfortable with dominance. 
Yeah, and there are lots of ways that you can enjoy holding power that don't have anything to do with sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I, it, um, it, it doesn't have to be just healing or productive. It could just be, this is fun. It's fun in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I did a scene a while ago with my partner, which was their idea, but it was really super fun, where it was going to be kind of like a, almost like a sugar daddy type of role play. So we negotiated the whole thing. We went to a very upscale lingerie store and I was the one talking to all the sales associates. I handed my partner my coat and my purse to hold as I like walked around looking at all the lingerie. I tried on a bunch of stuff. I like texted them photos from the dressing room and then I like chose a set and they paid for it on their credit card, like without speaking to the sales staff. And, um, I just felt extremely powerful in that moment. And that was like not really sexual at all. I mean, aside from the fact that it was lingerie and I did look very sexy, but um, it was <laughs> it was just like this, this taste of this type of power that I had not had before. And I was like, ooh, that's, that's intriguing. Mm-hmm. And it didn't feel sexy to you other than the fact that it was lingerie. It just felt interesting. I mean, I think it felt sexy in the sense that feeling confident can make a person feel sexy. Like uh, Emily Nagoski, the sex educator, talks about the idea of sexual accelerator and sexual brakes. And uh, I think when I'm able to take my foot off my sexual brakes, which can be any number of things from anxiety to insecurity to stress going on in my life, um, when I'm able to to slow down on those breaks, then my sex drive can kind of ramp up uh, in the space left by that. And so definitely I felt very confident and also very beautiful and uh, very like loved because like obviously we know spending money on someone is not the definitive sign that you love them. Um, and it's not always a sign that you love them at all. But in this case, I did very much experience this as an expression of love as well as an expression of submission from my partner. So yeah, there were just a lot of good feelings going on that I wasn't even expecting as we were negotiating the scene. That's, that's gorgeous. That's awesome. (laughs) Do you mind my asking how long you and your partner have been together? We've been together a little over two years now. So you're into that place where you kind of hit a rhythm with somebody if you're going to. Yeah, I think I definitely in the early stages of DS relationships have a tendency to be like, okay, you say you're into dominating me, but like, are you really though? Like, are you really enjoying this? Is this really how you want to be doing this? And I think we've definitely gotten to a place where I pretty much trust that the things that they are doing to and with me are things that they want to be doing, which definitely enables me to relax into my submission much more. Yeah, knowing that somebody is doing it really out of their own desire for pleasure as well as obviously their desire to be in in interaction or in in relationship with you mm-hmm. can make so much more space in the relationship for for everything including saying and asking for what you want because you can trust you can trust their yes, you can trust their no. Yeah, exactly. I've definitely had relationships in the past where I felt like the person was just sort of begrudgingly indulging my desire to be submissive. And that's weird on so many levels, like consent wise and otherwise. But but there's also this strange thing where like that makes me feel like I have the power because you're doing what I said because I said it and because you know that that's what I want, even though you don't want it. And so like I'm in this weird dominant position which is not a thing that turns me on so it kind of negates the whole thing (laughs) yeah there's this fine line between your dominant wants to know what you like and what you don't like so they can play with that Mm -hmm. versus your dominant wants to know what you like so they can do exactly what you want them to (laughs) do because you're in charge like it's a yeah it's such a subtle difference, but it makes it it makes the entire thing feel different. Yeah, the uh, the kink educator Sinclair Sexsmith talks about this concept called the palette of permission. Yeah, I love it, and it's it's just basically like 
there's a buffet of things that you know are uh, usually wanted or usually acceptable within your particular kink dynamic. And and when I'm a submissive, just like telling someone who's not really a dominant that I want them to dominate me, I kind of feel more like I'm just ordering something off the menu. And it's like, maybe I would like to be surprised by something <laughs> random from the buffet. Yeah. And the challenge, of course, is that if you want to surprise someone with something random off the buffet, you first have to know if they have any food allergies, what kinds of foods they typically <laughs> yes, like to exactly. eat, what kinds of foods they might be interested in, right? That understanding, and that requires a lot of communication. I, I'm, I'm really fond of saying com bad communication is the root of all evil. <laughs> Maybe that's a little too absolute, but only a little bit. You, you need to have that communication. You need to have that, both of you need to have that self-knowledge of like, here's the stuff I know I like, here's the stuff I might like. And you have to be willing to be vulnerable enough to share it and share yeah, it honestly. I which is which goes back to exactly what you were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see a prime example of like doms thinking they are going to know what I want when I'm on like a dating app or something and it mentions in my profile that I'm submissive and people immediately start calling me a bad girl or a naughty girl, which uh, first of all is not great because you shouldn't be doming someone like immediately without their consent, super weird. But it's also strange to me because if they knew me at all as a submissive, they would know I am not a bad girl. I'm not a naughty girl. I'm a very good girl. That's, that's what I like to be. And that's what I am. I'm not bratty. Like I have no issue with submissives who like to be bratty, but that's not me. And so it just shows this like fundamental misunderstanding and their thought process that all submissives are the same and are going to want the same things, which is just not true at all. Yeah. And which is, you know, let's be real, not true whether you're again in a, in a more sexual context or in a more work context, like it's, it's never true that one of your employees or one of your supervisees or one of your new hires is going to respond to the same kind of feedback or the same kind of uh, nourishing and nurturing that someone else will. And so finding out, finding out what works, it's not just as Midori talks about um, top biscuits and bottom cookies, <laughs> finding out what one person likes in their biscuits or cookies is going to be different from finding out what somebody else likes. And if you don't do that exploration ahead of time, you're likely to give someone something and they're going to just let it hit the floor because they're not interested in it. <laughs> and that can, that can create a, a fracture that you then have to go back and address or repair. Mm -hmm. So what piece of advice do you have for our listeners around power? I guess sometimes when I'm being interviewed about kink, people will be like, so why should someone try kink? And I'm always like, well, like they sh shouldn't necessarily like they should try it if they feel called to it, like if they if they want to. But at the same time, I'm aware that like I didn't know I was kinky until I was like 23. Like I really genuinely thought I was vanilla. And so I'm a big advocate for the idea of like, well, if, if it calls to you at all, if you're at all curious about it, like give it a shot. You never know. Um, and I think if you're approaching kink for the first time or even like for the thousandth time, like it's worth thinking about how does this relate to your own real life experiences of power or lack thereof? And is there a way that you can like, adapt your kink life to give you an experience of power or lack thereof that feels pleasurable to you? Um, because kink is this kind of like endless imaginative space. Like as long as you have a partner who's willing to go with you on it, you can role play literally anything that you can think of. And uh, there's just so many more possibilities for exploring power dynamics than you would typically encounter in your day-to-day -day life. And so, yeah, I think it can be really interesting and fun to explore that. That's not really a piece of advice. That's just kind of <laughs> a long-winded <laughs> suggestion. A reflection. Yeah. A reflection on kink and why you might find it useful. Um, I, I think it's it's interesting to engage those questions of like, so if you think you're not into kink, and this is this is really useful for this podcast because I have a really wide range of listeners. The, you know, the range of interviewees I have lined up so far is reflective of the of my audience on the internet, and and I have a really diverse audience. 
And so the, the question is like, how could this be relevant to somebody who knows they're vanilla or who uh, thinks they know that they're vanilla uh, <laughs> because people are discovering that they're not all the time? Um, or to somebody who feels uncomfortable, like whether or not you think that your sexuality could be more, more creative or more, um, or more kinky than it, than it currently is. How, even if you, you're uncomfortable with the idea and you just don't want to do it, that's fine. Like that's really important. And I want to emphasize that over and over again. If this isn't your thing, it's not your thing and that's fine. But how could these concepts or these ideas or these kinds of explorations be useful or helpful? And even, you know, some of the stuff we talked about earlier, like ways that you can role play something, you know, thinking about the ways in which a role reversal, even if you just like grab a friend and say, listen, I need to act with more assertiveness when I go to work. And so I would like you to help me. Or here's the thing that I did years ago and that I continue to do is when I use voice assistants, which I, I'm an early adopter technologically, I tend to adopt things before most of the world is using them. And so I had a, a voice assistant when they first started coming out with it, when it was a like an add-on app that you could put on your phone. And, um, and I, for one of the first things I did was change the voice to a man's voice. <laughs> and the reason I did it was that I was like, I, I don't need any more practice ordering. I don't need any more practice ordering women around. Our entire culture is constructed to teach us to order women around. I need to learn to have enough confidence to tell a man to tell me to do something for me. Um, and this was a perfect opportunity, right? He's never going to talk back. There's never going to be an issue. And it was fascinating to see how I felt about it. I mean, it was a robot. I knew it was a robot. And still. <laughs> yeah, I have a fake male assistant. Um, he, I created him because I was curious about, I had read an experiment that that found that clients at a particular, I forget if it was a real estate firm or something, were nicer to the male employees, like more polite and, and more willing to do deals with them. And so I, I created an email account for this totally fictional man and, uh, and named him like the editorial assistant of my blog. And I started answering all the emails from potential advertisers from his account. And giving all the same rates and using all the same language, just like, you know, obviously shift the uh, the pronouns to, to talk about Kate and not me. Um, but I found like my my income really improved and people were much more polite to my assistant than they would be to me. And uh, sometimes they even thought that he was the boss of the operation, <laughs> which is like, have you seen my website? Um yeah, but so it just, it, it was very interesting for me too, like you were saying, to kind of experience what it felt like, even in theory, to be the boss of a man who is, you know, performing my my wishes and uh, and also to observe all the sexism in the world. <laughs> yeah, that I read about your, when you did that experiment and then I, and, you know, of course, reading about it being public, I was like, well, that's an interesting <laughs> That's going to be an interesting shift, right? Because you can't quite maintain that once you've told people you're doing it. Well, I actually have continued to maintain it because I, this was like a, a big discussion question for me at the time. Um, and I, I decided to continue with it because most of the people who emailed me to ask about advertising have not looked into me like at all. Like they've, they've selected my blog from a list they found on Google or whatever. And so like literally no one has ever called me out on it. No one has ever replied and been like, Hey Kate, I know this is you. Let's just drop the charade. Um, and so I've just been able to continue <laughs> making more money than I was before by using this fake man. It's great. That's brilliant. <laughs> That's disturbing and brilliant. <laughs> Do you have any last words for us? I think one of the big lessons I've taken away from being submissive that I wish more people understood is that there is great power in giving up your power temporarily and consensually. Uh, I mean, like a lot of religious traditions know this and talk about the power of surrender and of surrendering your will to a higher power. And I'm definitely not going to compare my dominant to God, but uh, I think clearly there is something there 
there's something helpful to the human psyche sometimes in in giving up power and surrendering. Um, and I know that there's a certain type of person who like never wants to do that uh, and finds no appeal in that, and that's fine. But I do think it's worth considering, and I think that sometimes we do our best work even just emotionally in moments that we are vulnerable and are showing our weakness and are allowing ourselves to depend on other people. Wise last words. So tell us again where they can find you. Yes. uh, My blog is girlyjuice.net and I have uh, lots of other writing essays, journalism, et cetera, at katewritesaboutsex.com. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at girly underscore juice, and I co-host two podcasts. One of them is The Dildorks, which is about sex, dating, and masturbating, and the other one is uh, Question Box, which is the game show podcast of shockingly personal questions, and you can look those up in whatever podcast app you use. Those sound fantastic, and again, we'll get that Vice article Emily Nagoski and um, Sinclair Sexsmith into the show notes so that folks can find them if they're interested in more. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been an incredible pleasure and um, you're so welcome. I look forward to seeing you on the internet. Thank you for listening to this episode of Power Pivot. We'd love to hear from you. Please rate and subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support Power Pivot and get early access to new episodes, go to intensivesinstitute.com slash Patreon. For information about coaching and consulting, or to book Leela for a talk or workshop, go to intensivesinstitute.com. <laughs>